Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? My Jungian therapist said to me that this breakdown was the best thing that had ever happened to me. If you haven't been keelhauled by life, then you're not living. Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. But now the sun aches over the tree line. This thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. Speaking lines gleaned from a dark and no moon night when only my pen knew its way. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety, and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Welcome to episode 28 of the Anxious Poets Podcast. I'm Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. And I don't know whether it's because it's spring um, or because it's May. May's the time when I was born. I was born on May the 6th just turned 62 and I always feel less anxious at this time of year. I think it's because there's more sunlight, we're coming towards the summer solstice, everything is green and growing. The things I planted in my greenhouse that I got for my 60th birthday are all coming up. I've tried tomato plants this year. Um, the garden that we had renovated last year, all the wildflower meadow is is blooming. Um, everything just looks green. When I walk up the valley, there's just this tinge of greenness that I find uh, hypnotic and soothing at this time of year. Getting out into the valley is such a great experience at this time of year. And I'm reminded of that great poem by Dylan Thomas. The force that through the green fuse drives the flower. The force that through the green fuse drives the flower drives my green age. That blasts the roots of trees is my destroyer. And I am dumb to tell the crooked rose my youth is bent by the same wintry fever. The force that drives the water through the rocks drives my red blood. That dries the mouthing streams turns mine to wax and I am dumb to mouth and to my veins, how at the mountain spring the same mouth sucks. The hand that whirls the water in the pool stirs the quicksand, that ropes the blowing wind hauls my shroud sail, and I am dumb to tell the hanging man how of my clay is made the hangman's lime. The lips of time leech to the fountainhead, love drips and gathers, but the fallen blood shall calm her sores. And I am dumb to tell a weather's wind how time has ticked to heaven around the stars.
and I am dumb, dumb to tell the lover's tomb how at my sheet goes the same crooked worm. Sorry, that turned out to be a lot more depressing than, than I originally intended here. But I think he captures something here. You can see at this time of year the force that drives the green fuse that drives the flower. It's Everything is, is sprouting. Everything is that translucent green. The, the beech trees, we have a beech hedge and it's just come into, uh, into leaf. And it looks just transparently green. Um, they harden off after a while, but there's a softness, a paperiness to them that is so exciting and so beautiful. But at the same time, Dylan Thomas sees that it drives my green age that blasts the roots of trees is my destroyer. Each turning of the season is a step towards the end. Um and, and I suppose that's partly what I want to talk about in this podcast. Um, I want to talk about marriage. Um, and you might be thinking, what on earth has that got to do with his, the poem he's just read? But it's, it's about that commitment to a life. I'll say more about this and a bit more about how David White talks about marriage uh, in a moment. But the, the, going back to the poem, he recognises the force that makes things grow is the force that leads them towards their demise. The hand that whirls the water in the pool stirs the quicksand that ropes the blowing wind, hauls my shroud sail. It's he, he using all this imagery of death and life and how those two mysterious things come together in this poem I am dumb to tell a weather's wind how time has ticked to heaven round the stars what a beautiful line how time has ticked to heaven round the stars that's what we're aware of especially as you get older like I am um, that, that it's the same force I am dumb to tell the lover's tomb how at my sheet goes the same crooked worm it's the same force it's the same force that brings us together. It's the same force that creates spring, that creates autumn and winter. I'm going to read in a minute from a, a book that I've been reading called The Lakota Way, which is um, by Joseph M. Marshall III, who is full Lakota. So the Lakota are a Native American uh, tribe, community, from... Uh, Nebraska, Dakota, Wyoming, that area, um, the Midwest, and they are, were referred to, not by themselves, I don't think, as the Sioux. When I was a kid in cowboy and Indian films, you always had the Sioux Indians. Well, they call themselves, from what I can work out, I forgive my ignorance, the Lakota, and... This, this writer is a full Lakota and I'm going to read a story that he relates in the book in a minute to speak about marriage. But he also talks about death and the Western view of death, that it is an enemy, something to be feared, never to be spoken of, to be um, kept in a dark place. Um 
and not faced, certainly not faced, not looked at, not understood. He says within the Lakota tradition, death is our best friend. It is the constant. Everything dies. Animals die. Plants die. Human beings die. Planets die. Stars die. It's, it's part of the renewing process that everything dies. And the poem that I've just read by Dylan Thomas is a homage to that deep connection between the force that drives the green fuse that drives the flower that we're really aware of at this time of year is also the blaster of roots it is also that my youth is bent by the same wintry fever it's the same thing and we're all part of that mystery and i find that comforting as i get older I find that comforting, not frightening. And that force that drives the green fuse, that drives the flower, drives me. The days when I wake up and I think, oh, not another day. When I used to wake up with raging anxiety. Or some days when you wake up and you think, I've slept well. And I'm looking forward to what's happening today. Those are all part of this mysterious process of living. And I find the pat religious answers less and less convincing. I don't mean that I don't have faith in something. I have faith, faith in the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. I have faith in that. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. We just watched the coronation. It was actually on my birthday. I had that moment like Dylan Thomas has in poem in October. I'd set off in the morning to go and get some shopping for a birthday celebration. And all the bells of the churches were ringing. And because <laughs> it was my birthday, there was that funny sense that this was all for me. Of course, it wasn't. It was for the king. But... Um, Dylan Thomas has that great sense that the whole world is opening up before him on the day of his birthday. Very keen on his birthdays was Dylan Thomas. Um, I watched the coronation. A lot of people I know were very disgruntled or switched off by it. I watched it partly because my family, my mother, my auntie, my grandma have had great affinity, have great affinity with the royal family. Um that sort of post-war feeling of of everyone being in it together was what my mum used to talk about. This young queen whose father had died. Somehow that coronation, uh, it's, it was the year my mum and dad got married. Um, it, it caught something of their imagination and I think somehow the imagination of the country. And I was really fascinated to see whether this coronation would do the same. And I have to say, I'm not sure it did. Uh, it, it felt as if it was looking backwards. It was very historic. You know, the, the, the book of the Gospels was produced from uh, the, the 6th century or something. Um, the, the throne was 700 years old and used by 22 monarchs or something. It was in Westminster Abbey where monarchs had been crowned for a thousand years. Um, but I was looking partly at the religious symbolism in it. 
And I, I found it kind of redundant. You know, they had a communion where they blessed the bread and wine. And they literally, the Archbishop and the Archbishop of York had the bread and wine, and so did the King and Queen Camilla. And that was it. Um, as a Roman Catholic, by by background, I mean, if if it had been a papal, I, I went to a papal mass in um, in Cardiff for when the when Pope John Paul came here. Everyone received communion. Everyone. There were thousands and thousands of people. So. And and the, all the symbolism was more about power and dignity and 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 the right of kings and all that sort of stuff. There wasn't much that I felt moved by at all. And that's what I mean about my faith in in religious institutions. I think they're floundering at the moment. A lot of religious institutions, and. This far more essential thing that Dylan Thomas is talking about is, I think, what I want to, to really focus on in, in this podcast. I said I wanted to talk about marriage. David White, um, poet friend of mine, <clears throat> we're about to do the Lake District tour again um, with him, where he takes a group walking, tramping around the lakes. He has a great book called The Three Marriages, and and he talks about Firstly, the, the sort of traditional, if you like, idea of marriage, which I think is not, it, it, it's deeper than an institutional religious ceremony. It's something that human beings have been attracted to for millennia. You know, there's evidence of, of marital uh, commitments going back thousands of years. This, this idea that we have of, of making a bond with another human being seems to have quite a power in our sense of who we are, in our imagination, in our sense of imagery and symbolism. It's it's a perennial thing that seems to reflower in each generation. Um, whether you actually call it a marriage, but that bond that forms between two human beings and a and as far as I'm concerned, I don't care whether it's two men, two women, a man and a woman. It's it's a bond that forms that's about love. And and it's so David talks about that initially, but then he he talks about another marriage in our lives, another bond that we form which he talks about as work or vocation. That sort of calling that we have to do something in our lives. I've been reading a lot by a guy called Bill Plotkin, who is an eco-psychologist, um, does a lot of wilderness work in America. Um, <clears throat> and he, he, he talks about finding the, I don't like this language, but the delivery mechanism for your soul, your way of, it, of, of bringing something to birth in the world. And that's another element of marriage is about bringing things to birth. 
making sacrifices together that bring something new into the world. And, and, you know, traditionally that might be a child, but I think you can broaden the imagery and metaphor of marriage that, that we have this mysterious connection to the things that we do in the world. And, you know, it, it, it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, it's okay for middle class, clever people who find a job that they really like, but a lot of people have to do shitty jobs um, that they hate. And, and that's true. There's a lot of truth in that. But also, right from the beginning of my working life, you know, I was crap at school. Um, my mum was having a nervous breakdown and I, I, I found school just just didn't grab my attention at all, except English literature. Dylan Thomas got me an English O-level, but that's the only one I got. So when I finally left school, um, I got no qualifications except an English O-level. And, and I was very immature and inexperienced. And I managed to get a job in a place called Ray Allen Manshops in Sheffield, selling clothes, of all things. Um, they were like Burton's. Um, they were a, a Leeds firm and they sold suits and shirts and overcoats and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, at first, my first sort of every morning, because I was the last in, was to, to mop out the arcade, which was... We had like this this corridor with glass windows on either side that led to the entrance of the shop, and that's where all the suits and 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 um, and dummies were with all the the clothes on them. And um, unfortunately, it was right in the middle of town, so it got used as a sort of urinal um, in uh, it, it, on a Saturday, Friday, and Saturday night. So especially Saturday mornings um, and then Monday mornings were grim. Um, and you know that was my job to uh, to clean out the arcade. I was dead relieved when I wasn't the last in anymore. But I did it, and I learned how to deal with it, and how to get the place looking spotless. Um, and I still think about that when I mop the kitchen floor. You know, when the dogs had an accident or the floors just got really mucky. I still think I learned how to do this in this kind of apprenticeship uh, to work, to, to, to doing something that has some kind of transactional value to it, has some kind of giving you a sense of who you are, where you fit in the world. Um, work is a strange thing. And... You know, as I've got older, I'm, I suppose I'm, you'd say I was semi-retired in some ways. I do spiritual direction. I suppose writing is work. But I've always had that sense of wanting to get up and do things. Um, and, and that's work. And that's a marriage of, of a type that David talks about. The final marriage that he talks about is the most mysterious in his, his description of it. And it's the marriage to yourself. Uh, I might say to your soul, Jung might say to the self, but to that inner world that in those those episodes that I did in autumn, the, 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 on the cusp between the inner and the outer world, 
it's that inner world of our dreams, of our imagination, of the things that happen to us and how we process them, that is the mysterious third marriage. And and each of those, our our relationship to other human beings, our relationship with what we do as as work, and our relationship with our inner self, they are, we go through all kinds of courtships and coolings off and maybe divorces and uh, f- new flowerings. We, we, we have such a mysterious relationship in these marriages. So I wanted, because our wedding anniversary is April the 7th, we got married in 1990, so we've been 33 years married. And, uh, you know, it was a traditional wedding, uh, Catholic. Both of us became Catholics in our late, early 20s. Um, it, there was a bishop and a load of priests. Um, it was very traditional in some ways. I wonder what we do now. My wife, Wilma, is is become quite well known as a celebrant of, of weddings and she does all kinds of people's weddings um, I wonder what we'd devise for ourselves now I'm not sure it would be a nuptial mass but but it was beautiful and lovely um, but the the day I mean that's one of the things that that Wilma I think talks to a lot of the couples she deals with the day is just the beginning um, or, or just the moment of celebration. Most people these days have been together. The last wedding she did, the couple have been together for nine years. But there's this desire to express something publicly that is part of what I want to explore. But as, as a way of into this, um, I want to read a story from this Lakota Way book. Um, I... I don't know how I discovered it. I've always been really attracted by uh, Native American thinking. Um, having been to New Mexico um, quite a few times, I've been very fortunate, and Arizona and Utah, places where the Navajo people um, were very active. And then up the Rio Grande, sort of um, through Albuquerque and up, up to Taos and beyond, uh, there were Pueblos which were settled communities. So you had, uh, like the Lakota were were nomadic, they were hunter-gatherer people. Uh, the Pueblo Indians were settled. Their land was given to them by Abraham Lincoln. And you see the tribal elders with these silver-pommeled sticks, uh, staffs that, that were given to them by him. Um, and of course, anyone who knows the history of uh, Native American people knows that it is a trail of tears, literally. Um, just appalling injustice. Uh, there's a book called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. If you, if you want to read a, a heart-rending but very powerful story of, of the Native peoples of, of, of North America, then, then that is a good book to read. Um, the the, the power within their tradition because they stayed so close to the green fuse to the force that drives the green fuse to the natural world the Lakota were dependent on buffalo of which there were millions before the white people came 
the Euro-Americans, Euro as they call them. And they, were, they, they, they knew how to live in harmony with the herds of buffalo. And then the white people came and slaughtered them and ruined their way of life. So these are a, a people who are very in touch, whose wisdom we now need. And this, he is, he, in the Lakota way, there are um, 12 chapters with 12 different virtues from the Lakota tradition. Stories and lessons for living, he, he calls it. Humility, perseverance, respect, honour, love, sacrifice, truth, compassion, bravery, fortitude, generosity and wisdom. And it, it's a really good book. And in the, the first story, so he has a story for each of these virtues, is, is the story of no moccasins. And uh, I'm going to read it to you. Among us, the old ones are the best models for how we should live our lives. Every old person is a collection of stories because of all that each one has seen and lived and all that happens in the world around them in a lifetime. I've not met an old person yet who is not a strong exemplar of at least one virtue, and many are outstanding exemplars of more than one. Such a person was an old woman named No Moccasins. She lived in a time before the coming of the horses, prior to 1700. No Moccasins and her husband, Three Horns, had lived long lives. They had a son and a daughter and several grandchildren. No moccasins, in fact, was grandmother to all the children in the village. She was a small woman, and by her 67th winter, her hair was the colour of new fallen snow. Just an aside, the, the, apparently the word in Lakota for, for years, how many years have you lived, uh, is, is basically winters endured. How many winters have you endured? Again, it just shows that connection to the wheel of the seasons that we've so lost. How many winters have I endured? 62. Uh, the lines in her face seemed to show the many trails she had walked in her life. No visitor to her modest but orderly lodge was ever left hungry, and rarely without a gift in hand, something that was finely quilled. She was known far and wide for her intricate quilling patterns and designs, and many women came to learn her skill. But in spite of all that, she was known mainly as the wife of Three Horns. Three Horns was a man of excellent reputation. He had been a warrior far past the time when most men lost the strength of arm and leg, as well as the will to take risks. So in his lifetime he had collected many, many war honours. The lance to which his eagle feathers were tied was twice as long as a man was tall. Every feather was an honour, of course, and no other man could boast of such a thing. When he finally turned from the warpath, he took his place on the Council of Elders. There he offered his wisdom unselfishly, and the skill with which he spoke could not be matched. He was seventy winters old, but his appearance could take the breath away. He didn't have the big belly that many old men did. He stood straight and tall, and his hair, which hung to his waist, was silvery white. In the village, everyone turned to Three Horns for advice. It seemed as though he had always been there, so when he fell ill and took to his deathbed, the entire village was in disbelief. Word travelled fast, and soon many, many people from other villages came to pay honour to the dying leader. 
Three Horns' tiny village grew to twice its size in a matter of days. No moccasins, her daughter and several other women were kept busy cooking to feed all the guests. When Three Horns was told about all the people who came, he asked the oldest people in the gathering to come to his lodge. The four men and two women who came to know Moccasins and Three Horns Lodge saw in the man's half of the lodge, which was to be the no- which was to the north, the long eagle feather staff, bows and arrows and lances, and buffalo hide shields that were the colourful symbols of the glorious life of a warrior. Three Horns, weak from his illness, spoke in a low voice with no Moccasins, who was sitting beside him. But he seemed to grow stronger as he went on. No moccasins, as she had always done, saw to the comfort of her guests and her husband and remained respectfully quiet. My friends and relatives, he began, thank you for coming into our lodge. I have been honoured to share this lodge with my wife for nearly 50 winters. In that time we were given a fine son and a fine daughter and many grandchildren. Our people saw difficulty as well as good. We took to the path of war now and then, and good men were hurt or died. We are feared and respected by our enemies. The number of our lodges and villages has grown in that time. We are a great strong people, our ways are good. I am thankful to the great mystery for bringing me into this world as a Lakota. I have lived a good life and I am ready for the next, but I leave, before I leave, I have a story to tell, and I ask that after the sun comes up tomorrow, you tell this same story to all the people gathered here. This is why I have asked you to come today. Here is what I want you to know. When I was a young man, I travelled south from my mother and father's village to hunt. I came to a village that was in camp for the summer just north of the Running Water River. There was great feasting and a dance at that time, for there had been a fight and a great victory over enemies to the south. I was invited to join the celebration. It was a good time. There was much food and we danced far into the night. I awoke the next morning beside the trail to the water and looked into the largest and most wonderful eyes I had ever seen. A young woman was gazing down at me. She said, It is funny what suddenly grows beside this trail. I jumped to my feet and followed her to the water and carried the water skins back to the village for her. That was the best choice I have ever had in my life. The next evening I stood in line outside the lodge of this young woman with all the other young men who had come to court her. Her name was Carries the Fire and she did put the fire in my heart. I was very surprised when she asked me to come again the next evening. You will not be surprised when I tell you I remained in her village until the autumn hunts. By then, for reasons I still cannot understand, but for which I am grateful, she had decided that I might be a good husband. So I went back north to tell my family so they could prepare the gifts to her family for the bride price. We were married the following spring. In between was the longest winter of my life. So I left my family and became part of her village as is a custom amongst us. Not long after that, enemies came from among the south, from the south on a revenge raid for the defeat they had suffered before. They killed a man and took two young women. A war party went south on their trail. I went along. We trailed them for half a moon. It seemed going far into the country I had never seen. We travelled fast and caught up with them as they rejoined their village. We hid and watched. We saw where they had put the two young women. Later we saw where their night sentinels were and made a plan. There were six of us. That night two of us would set a fire to the east of the village. The two of us would do the same to the west. 
While the men of the village were busy putting out the fires, two of us would sneak in and take back our young women. The plan worked except for one thing. I was one of the two sneaked into the village, and I was captured. By dawn, all our war party had escaped back to the north with the two young women, and I was glad to pay the price of a good raid. As you might think, my captors were very angry. They made me a slave. All my clothing was taken from me, everything. I was led around naked. Everyone laughed. I was made to work. I pulled drag poles like a dog until my hands and knees were bleeding. They teased me. They threw dirt in my face. Women pulled up their dresses in front of me and laughed, showing me I was no longer a man. They gave me no food, so I had to fight with the dogs for scraps. At night, they bound me hand and foot and stretched me between two stout poles. There was no way to escape. I began to feel lower than a dung beetle. I lost count of the days, but I looked for ways to escape. But lack of food made me very weak, and I knew that before I was too weak, I had to escape. After a time, they stopped putting a guard to sit and watch me at night. Night after night I pulled at the poles which held me, and little by little I loosened them. But someone saw what I had done and pounded the poles in deeper. I was discouraged. I am not ashamed to tell you that one night I prayed to the great mystery to give me a quick death. I could not escape. I was too weak. One night it was cold and rainy, and I was naked and shivering. There was no one about. It was too cold. Even the dogs curled up out of the rain. My heart was sad as I thought about my young wife and that I would never ever see her again. I thought about her so much that her face appeared to me. After a, mo a moment I realised it was real, she was there. While I lay there in disbelief she cut my bonds with her knife, pulled me to my feet and guided me out of the enemy's village. I was weak from hunger and my mind was not clear, but I know we walked through the night and by dawn arrived at a hiding place she had prepared. The rain had fallen through the night and washed out our tracks. She could not have found a better time to come. She had hidden food and weapons. As my mind cleared, I saw that she was wearing men's clothes, mine, to disguise herself for the journey. We hid and we ate and rested. She told me that the other men had returned home with the news I had been killed. She grieved for a time, she said, but she found herself not believing I was really dead. One night she made preparations and left the camp. The others told her where the enemy camp was located. She knew where to look. After many days of hiding and watching, she came into the camp on that rainy night. Though our tracks were washed out by the rain, the enemy knew we had to travel north to come home, so they sent out a war party. After a few days of resting and hiding, we were eager to start home. We knew to be cautious, of course, and we looked often at our trail. This is how... We saw others heading in the same direction, six of them moving fast. I knew they had to be from the village where I had been a captive, and that those six men were the best of their warriors. I had escaped when they were certain I could not. They could not know that I had had help. Because my escape was an insult, they could not let that pass. They sent out their best trackers, their fiercest warriors. We covered our trail as best we could, but it did not matter. They were running, and I could not. Carries the fire and I decided that we should hide so that we would not leave a trail that they would find. But they had to be thrown off somehow. I thought about that, but I could do nothing, so I did not speak a thought to, that thought to her. But she had thought the same. We made a good hiding place in an old bear's den. 
That afternoon while I slept, she slipped away. She returned that evening wet and barefoot. She had placed her moccasins near a creek to lay a false trail for our pursuers. Later she told me that when she, they nearly spotted her, she hid in a beaver's lodge. She had to go into the creek and come up inside the beaver's house. I teased her, saying that she should have a new name, No Moccasins. After two days, we left our hiding place and struck out west, and travelled in that direction for three days, then north. I began to call her No Moccasins, because it was a name of honour for what she had done. That is why my wife is called No Moccasins. Though I grew stronger each day, it was not an easy journey home, but we had to watch for enemies, find food and shelter each night. But it was her quiet courage more than anything that was our greatest strength. The people were surprised to see us. They believed that I had been killed and my, that my wife had gone off and killed herself. That is not unknown. My wife did not want to tell our, me to tell our story and would only let me say that I had escaped from my captors. The people honoured me for that, but it was not my victory. I have asked you old ones to our lodge to witness for me. It is time to repay the great debt I owe to my wife. Throughout my life I was fortunate as a warrior, and somehow I was able to win some honours and gain a reputation. Yet all those honours are not mine, because I could not have achieved them if my wife had not risked her life. I have not heard of any man in my lifetime who has done a braver deed. She travelled alone into enemy country and sneaked into an enemy's village. Few men can say they have done that. Because of her deed, I took to the warpath each time with one thought in mind, to be worthy of my wife. My life long, I have tried to be worthy, but I am afraid I am not. So I must give all these honours to the one who truly deserves them. I give them to my wife. I ask that my warrior weapons and my eagle feather staff be moved from the man's place in our lodge to the woman's place, where they should rightfully be. I will leave this world soon, and I ask that another thing be done. I ask that my burial scaffold hold only my body wrapped in my burial robe. I will leave this world as the man I was before I met my wife, poor and unadorned. All that I appeared to be would not have been if not for this woman. Three horns sighed deeply and settled back. No moccasin silently wiped away her tears and pulled a robe up over her husband. I have known good people in my life, Three Horns continued. Many were wise, honourable, generous and brave, but none except this old woman who sits beside me as always has the one strength that gives true meaning to all the others, humility. She did a brave thing and no one, not the strongest warrior among us, has yet to do the same. She, yet she cared not if anyone knew. It is time that everyone knows. Thus I have spoken. The old ones gathered with three horns gave their word to tell the story of no moccasins, courage and humility. Through the days and nights that followed, young and old alike crowded around the campfires to listen to the old ones. Before long, no moccasins' name rose with the smoke from many campfires. Days later, three horns died in the arms of his beloved, no moccasins. Though her loss was great, she comforted others. As he wished, Three Horns' burial scaffold was unadorned. Those who mourned for him also honoured his widow. No moccasins cut her hair short in the morning, but nothing else outwardly changed. She lived a life the same as always, a small, quiet old woman amidst the bustle of a busy village. She gave her husband's eagle feather staff, his shield and his weapons to the Kit Fox Warrior Society. They in turn decided to hang those symbols of honour in the great council lodge in the very centre of the village. 
There they would remain as a reminder of one man's courage and an old woman's humility. The honour and reverence that Three Horns was given in his life now belonged to no moccasins. Not a day went by that a gift of food was not left outside her lodge door, and every day she shared those gifts with the very young and the very old. For the rest of her days no moccasins wanted for nothing. In the winter the firewood piled outside her door was nearly as high as the lodge. This too she shared. She welcomed all who came to visit, and many who did were warriors from near and far. They came to bring gifts and to share a meal, and to sit in the presence of courage to learn humility. No moccasins died in her seventieth winter. On her burial scaffold were hung her husband's shield, his weapons, and the eagle feather staff. On the ground below were piled hundreds of moccasins, so she would not have to journey to the other side in bare feet. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. What a great story. I'm sorry, that's quite long and it's probably taken up half the podcast, but there's just something powerful to me in that story about these partnerships that we form with other human beings uh, they are never what they quite seem I think you never quite know what that alchemy is between two people in, in that story three horns seemed to be the great warrior and everyone looked up to him but he, he finally had the humility to admit that none of it would have been possible without her. And her humility in that relationship was that, that she put the relationship first. And I, I suppose that's what I'm talking about, is that ability to, to find a relationship that you can put ahead of your own ego your own um, what you think is important for you that that relationship when I when I think about I I spent seven years living as a celibate uh, training for the priesthood and it taught me a lot about relationships you know I, I found where the line was when you when you got close to another person in my case as a heterosexual person, another woman, um, that there was there was a moment where that could turn into something different, something deeper, uh, and and I would stand back from that line. But it made me realise when I decided not to be a priest how important that line was, and when I met my wife Wilma, as we crossed that line and learned about each other and what each other felt attracted in each other by and that's a mysterious thing what is it in that other person that you feel attracted by it's it's always something that reflects something in yourself i think that mysterious marriage and i'm aware all my kids identify a a, either as bisexual or, or gay. Um, so I, I'm not talking about this traditional idea uh, of marriage. Th- that idea that people express that 
gay marriage, um, same-sex marriage somehow is a threat to the institution of marriage. I just don't get that. You know, I'm, I'm heterosexual in a marriage. If my daughter marries a girl, I, that's fantastic. I just It's about that loving reflection of one another to each other. That's what matters. Um, and that comes from those deep relationships, committed relationships. It can come from a deep friendship. But I'm, I'm just recalling a time when just as, as my wife and I got together, we'd fallen in love and there was all that amazing, intoxicating feeling. But my wife's a deep introvert and I'm quite introverted. And and she we went to Paris for the weekend and she suddenly went really quiet and I could feel that there was a panic going on inside her. And she didn't talk about it for a while. And then she said, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, I've been on my own for all this time. I'm not sure whether I can do this. Um, and, and, and so I wrote this piece um, years after called That Night in Paris. That night in Paris, you travelled a great distance to arrive, descending from your solitary realm. Your raven hair and sleek body enfolding my unsteady boyhood, hovering at the doorsill of consummation, yet with passionate chastity espousing a promise of fulfilment. A panic inundated you in the French streets about our engagement as we traipsed the artist's quarter lighting candles in the Sacre Coeur. To embrace me would breach your seclusion and disclose you to another. I told you in my arrogance you would never find a better spouse for your singular soul. Still in the shadow of Notre Dame, still the shadow of Notre Dame conjured rejection, that crouching gargoyle of humpback fear. But you found some inner recess in that unvoiced night of passion and danced out to touch my naked soul with fragile translucent wings. I did not recognise then that you would be an echo of my intimate Eve and I would come to mirror your secret shining Adam. Very romantic language in that poem. Um, 33 years on, um, I still feel that incredible wonder when you meet someone who just you just connect with uh there's a there's a power in that um but but that sort of high-blown way i've described it your secret shining adam but but there is jung has this idea that that you have this self he talks about in a in a man the anima that the sort of the feminine soul, if you like, and in a woman, the animus, the masculine. I, I, I don't know how that works all with gender fluidity and things like that, but there is there is sort of a, a, a depth to each one of us that is almost opposite to our gender in some way. Um, I can't put it more clearly than that. And I think in a relationship, there's a mirroring of those inner depths that can be really revelatory of who we are and and introduces us and friendships do this too introduces us to who we are and to what we might need to do in the world what we might need to be about in the world you know i've often talked about the curative things the curative of um of creativity 
I've found in, in my marriage that we have tried to help each other find that creative spark. My wife's off doing a course on painting the human head this afternoon. Uh, yesterday we were rehearsing for a gig where uh, the, the group we formed called Duskover Rivlin um, my friend Andy who plays the guitar and accompanies some of my poems and his, uh, he's recruited this guy called Mike who plays the double bass and Wilma sings refrains in the poems and sings songs of her own. The, you know, there's something about how we can reflect to each other the deep soul movements. That sounds very new age, doesn't it? But the, the, um, the deep abilities that we have to counter the powerful anxieties of the world we live in with creative expression, creative work, you know, whatever that might be. And, and with work in the world, with, with things where we creatively look after people. You know, my wife was a chaplain in the children's hospital for seven years. She was a social worker. Um, she has a powerful drive to to care and and to try and make the world a better place. One of the things that keeps her awake at night is 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 the injustices in the world, especially the animal world. Don't try and watch a film with Wilma if it's got anything where an animal gets hurt. You know she'll watch crime thrillers and all sorts, but animals because she's got this powerful sense of of how unjust that is, how appalling that is to treat the natural world in a way that is despicable. So this this what I'm trying to talk about is what that story so powerfully, you know, it, if you can listen to it again, there's so much in that Lakota story and in the whole book, in fact. I listened to it on an audio book and his voice is brilliant. Um, but But you know those the, the way in a relationship in a marriage whether it's you know whatever kind of marriage it is whatever kind of coming together the old catholic idea of of, of a sacrament they called marriage a sacrament the old idea the old adage was an outward sign of an inward grace so a marriage was sacramental. It would revealed the face of God because it was the outward sign of an inward grace. And, and there is, you know, in a relationship, whether it's a friend, deep friendship, whether it's a relationship with an animal, you know, you know I can't say I've been married to my dogs, but, but it's a deep, committed relationship. When you take on a dog, we've just taken on... Jack, he's a year old. God, it's bloody hard work. You know, maybe maybe that's like having a child. It's the fruit of a relationship. But you also create a relationship with a with an animal. Um that's repaid a hundredfold in my opinion. But but these these deep committed relationships, they're so important in our lives. They're so important and, and they all reflect that deep committed relationship to our own inner life to our own inner dynamic it's so easy to ignore your inner world 
I just want to read this. I had a um, a spate of being asked to write pieces for um, for marriages of my friends. I wrote one for Ray and Rachel in twenty fourteen, um, and and I I just keep trying to explore um, in the way that those couples came together what it is. And this one's called. It was for Patrick and Sarah. Um, Patrick Ryan is a really good friend of mine. It's called We Find Each Other. Miraculously, we find each other. Ordinarily, in the midst of the mundane, a bond is found. Hands clasp across an uncharted hinterland and kisses those rudimentary brokers of connection fashion the intertwining topiary of two lives growing together, two families colliding. Out of myriad prospects comes that one face in whose lineage of laughter lines and tear tracks your future topography is traced and charted. Faith in the welding of your two metals into one seraphic alloy is born and the heated ache of urging union seals the willing death to new departures. All opening the way to this day and the Isle of Consent opening before you now, like the Sea of Reeds parting before the mosaic staff, disclosing the seawall dry-shod fish-flapping, seaweed-strewn path down which you travel into the promised estate, that honeyed confederacy and your first babe's milk-suck and tender nuzzle. The slave drivers will pursue you, have no doubt, with their whips of injunction and chariots of chariness, but always be ready to let the sea close over them and their false gods of order and idols of prudence. You were drawn by grace to this wedding of generousness, where your hearts will be broken, but what could be better? You were drawn by grace to this wedding of generousness, where your hearts will be broken, but what could be better? That's the thing. There's absolutely no guarantee in these bonds that we form that our hearts won't be broken. In fact, if we do it well, they will. You know, uh, I remember when uh, I've witnessed divorces, separations of good friends, of relatives. It's so painful. It's agonising at times. But even that heartbreak... It shows where the bond was so powerful and leaves that wrench and rent, that scar. But it shows a bond was made. Uh, and, 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 you know, it was my auntie's wedding anniversary, April the 1st. She's been married for a long time. But she was married before. Um, and, and I remember him fondly as well. You know, she found my Uncle Neil and and they are one of the best examples of, of a partnership and a marriage I know in my life. They're just, yeah. They have shown me something about partnership and about fun, how much fun they have um, and how they walk through their lives together. Um, so... I, I, I've herbled on about all this. I'm not really quite sure what I'm trying to say, except that pay attention, I think, is what I'm saying to myself. Pay attention to the, the bonds that you formed. 
and the potential bonds that come your way in friendships um, with the animal world as well as the human world uh, and the the what they reflect to you about yourself and how they show you I've been shown through my marriage who I am my wife said to me yesterday she said you've really worked at these poems the ones about Sheffield and it's consummate and and her saying that other people could say it and I'd think oh that's nice of you to say it her saying that someone who knows all my faults and foibles that wow it's yeah it's 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 worth everything because it shows me who I am so I want to finish with a piece that I wrote quite a long time ago but about this time of year and about the sort of sacred marriages that we have in our lives and think about marriage as a as a metaphor we marry places as well I think certain places that that take our hearts I feel that about Sheffield um, certain places that we go on holiday they take our hearts and and this is about a road I used to live on in the other side of Sheffield and every year there are cherry trees up and down the length of the road mature cherry trees and when we moved here I kept thinking I must go back I remember the blossom and how great it looked um, and I always kept forgetting so I went this particular year and I wrote this piece it's called Blossom as you drive past the hanging blossom of the cherry tree you are moving too fast their pale luminescence and unnoticed glory a promise year by year you fail to keep but one day soon you will stop get out of the car and amble down the aisle of spring. There you will feel the tidal pull of all that growth, the vernal current of possibility. It will be time to call an end to speed and the unspoken grimness of hurry. What will the blossom say as it falls kindly on your upturned face? You are my witness your presence a sign that falling is never wasted. Look, the strewn confetti of a richer life is all around you. All you have to do is trust its kindness to bring you home. Then you will see there is no other life for you hidden in someone else's wake. Only this marriage to everything you meet on the roughened track covered in blossom only to welcome yourself as a guest at these unexpected nuptials of self-compassion. Only this spring, your own spring, blossoming open before your astonished face. That line about what will, what will the blossom say as it falls kindly on your upturned face, it'll say, you are my witness, your presence a sign that falling is never wasted. I think a good marriage, a good 
committed friendship, a good uh, bond proves to you that falling is never wasted. Certainly in our marriage, we've both fallen. We've both had mental health difficulties. We've both had anxieties. We've struggled. But that falling's never been wasted. And then, you know, when there are those moments, you know, it's like the strewn confetti of a richer life is all around you. All you have to do is trust its kindness to bring you home. Then you will see there is no other life for you hidden in someone else's wake. It's your life. Only this marriage, to everything you meet on the rough and track covered in blossom, everything you meet on the rough and track covered in blossom, only to welcome yourself as a guest at these unexpected nuptials of self-compassion. I think the marriage with yourself is the commitment to self-compassion. Is is to say to yourself, it's okay, you've done your best, you've tried. All those fallings are not wasted. This spring, your own spring, blossoming open before your astonished face. I hope this spring blossoms open before your astonished face and that the burbling of this podcast has helped you See the bonds and marriages you've formed in your life. See the bonds and marriages that might be open to you. And that we can enter into those down that track covered in blossom together. I'm, I'm glad to speak with you. Um, look forward to the next time and um, go well. Poetry anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast.